Son. Welcome all of you to the ninth hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress. This hearing is the second hearing in a three-part series of hearings titled The China Challenge, which will examine how the United States should respond to the challenge of a rising China that seeks to upend and supplant the U.S.-led liberal world order. During our first hearing on July 24th, uh, dedicated to Chinese economic coercion, one of our distinguished witnesses testified, we are slowly waking up to a set of strategies by the Chinese Communist Party meant to enhance party power internally and globally at our expense. The CCP has adopted a, a number of strategies to strengthen the party's grip on the country uh, so that it can lead China back to middle kingdom centrality. These strategies have been in place for a while but have been accelerated by Communist Party Secretary General Xi Jinping. The Trump administration has come to see the same conclusion regarding the China threat. According to the National Security Strategy released in December of 2017, for decades, U.S. policy was rooted in the belief that support for China's rise and for its integration into the post-war international world order, order would liberalize China. Contrary to our hopes, China expanded its power at the expense of the sovereignty of others. According to the National Defense Strategy released in January, it is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic, and security decisions. And according to the most recent Department of Defense report on Chinese military power released in August, in support of the goal to establish a powerful and prosperous China, the China dream includes a commitment to developing military power commensurate with that of a great power. Chinese military strategy documents highlight the requirements for a People's Liberation Army able to secure Chinese national interests overseas, including a growing emphasis on the importance of the maritime and information domains, offensive air operations, long-distance mobility operations, and space and cyber operations. So today's hearing will examine these security and military developments and the U.S. policy options to prevent China's coercion from undermining peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. Countering China's less than peaceful rise represents a grave challenge for U.S. national security. I'm pleased that both the administration and Congress are now recognizing this reality and taking steps to rebuild our military to meet the challenges of tomorrow, including those emanating from Beijing. In the Senate, Senator Markey and I are leading a bipartisan effort called the, and Senator Kane is also a co-sponsor of the legislation, called the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, which will set a new course for U.S. policy toward the Indo-Pacific, including significantly boosting U.S. security presence in the region and enhancing partnerships to resource and meet the administration's goal of a free and open Indo-Pacific. We're expecting the full committee to consider the legislation in the coming weeks and passage through the Senate soon thereafter. When signed into law, ARIA will become a generational approach that will put American interests first by reassuring our allies, deterring our adversaries, and securing U.S. leadership in the region for future generations. Now I'll turn it over to Senator Markey, Ranking Member, for his comments. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, very much, and thank you for convening another very timely and important hearing. And I want to thank our excellent witnesses today as well for uh, your willingness to participate in this very important conversation that you are running, Mr. Chairman. Uh, while both of them are here as outside experts, both have served in government and throughout their careers and have worked uh, to further U.S. foreign policy and national security interests. As you have stated, Mr. Chairman, this is the second in our series of subcommittee hearings on the evolving challenge China poses to the United States, to our allies, 
and partners into the international system we built together to ensure stability, prosperity, and equality for all. For those who follow the Indo-Pacific region closely, and increasingly for those who do not, China's concerted efforts to institute economic, security, and domestic policies that advance its interests alone are significant and demand our attention. And I think our shared goal for these hearings, Mr. Chairman, is to increasingly shine a light, a bright light, on China's efforts in this regard and to try to understand their implications for the security and well-being of us all. In our last hearing, we investigated China's efforts to use economic coercion across the board to advance its interest. We discussed how predatory loans contained within its Belt and Road Initiative threatened to bury countries in debt and undermine their sovereign decision making. We explored how China uses access to its vast markets to pressure American companies into sharing sensitive intellectual property or even changing the way they refer to Taiwan on websites and maps. And in its most blatant form, we discussed the pure economic retaliation Beijing is now willing to openly impose against countries whose policies it does not like. In the future, we will address China's human rights record and several recent and concerning developments in that arena. But today, we are exploring China's extensive military modernization and expansion, as well as its implications, which given China's size and influence are potentially quite large. Beijing is no longer content just to exert its influence behind closed doors. Instead, it is building an ever more capable military, increasingly able to undermine the international rules and norms that, thanks to American leadership, have governed the Indo-Pacific since the end of World War II. According to the recently released Defense Department report on Chinese military and security developments, quote, in support of the goal to establish a powerful and prosperous China, the China dream includes a commitment to developing military power commensurate with that of a great power. And as a result, the People's Liberation Army is, quote, undergoing the most comprehensive restructure in its history. As part of these efforts, China is building a blue water navy. It is streamlining and modernizing its ground forces. It is updating its nuclear arsenal and developing hypersonic weapons. And it has built military bases on artificial islands in contravention of international law in the South China Sea. These developments taken together are significant. In some cases, the United States should continue to proactively build its economic and diplomatic toolkit to ensure that no one military advancement upends the establishment order. In other, case, in other cases, we must respond, but we need to start by better understanding what these Chinese developments mean so we can ensure that they do not undermine peace and stability, so that countries throughout Asia and beyond are not physically bullied and coerced, and that Americans can continue to uphold and support the fundamental right to which we believe all people are entitled. At the same time, however, we need to maintain a realistic view of the challenges. We are not heading to war with China tomorrow, nor should we be 
conflict is in no one's interest. So we should be sober in our assessments and resist the urge to err too far towards alarmism. But as the values we hold dear come under increasing threat from an ever larger and more assertive Chinese military, it is incumbent upon us to consider thoughtfully how best to ensure no effort, military or otherwise, undermines the values we and so many other Indo-Pacific countries hold dear. To do this, we must invest time, yes, resources, yes, and above all, leadership. No other country can bring to bear on this challenge the breadth of resources that we can. But an America alone strategy will not lead to the peaceful outcomes that we seek. Now more than ever, we must work even more closely with the allies and partners who share our values throughout the region and around the world. We must show them that they are not fighting for these values on their own. And we must do it through more than military might. It is equally important that we adequately fund the State Department, USAID, and others so that our diplomats and our foreign assistance advisors can provide a better, more durable alternative to quick Chinese inducements. Only such a multifaceted approach will truly help us meet the growing challenge that China poses. We simply cannot afford to cede leadership on this. Doing so risks being confronted with a situation where defending our values, our interests, and our allies raises the risk of conflict to unacceptably high levels. Understanding and then solving these challenges are upfront investments that will pay immeasurable dividends in the end. So I thank you, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to exploring these issues with our witnesses today. Uh, and again, I thank you for your willingness to participate. Thank you, Senator Markey, and thank you to Senators Risch and Kane as well for your participation. Uh, I'll introduce our, our witnesses. Uh, I greatly appreciate uh, your willingness to be here today. Our first witness is Dr. Oriana Schuyler Mastro, uh, who is the Jean Kirkpatrick Visiting Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on Chinese military and security policy in the Asia Pacific. She is also Assistant Professor of Security Studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and serves in the United States Air Force Reserve as a political military affairs strategist at Pacific Air Forces. Uh, previously, Dr. Mastro was a fellow in the Asia Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, welcome, Dr. Mastro. Thank you very much for your service and being here today. Uh, also uh, joined on the panel uh, by Abraham Denmark, who is director of the Asia Program uh, at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Prior to joining the Wilson Center, Mr. Denmark served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia, where he supported the Secretary of Defense and other U.S. senior government leaders in the formulation and implementation of national security strategies and defense policies toward the region. Mr. Denmark also previously worked as Senior Vice President for Political, uh, Political and Security Affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research, a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and held several positions in the U.S. intelligence community. But most importantly, uh, from Fort Collins, Colorado, home of the great Colorado State University. Uh, welcome, Mr. Denmark. Thank you for your service. And uh, Dr. Mastro, if you would like to begin. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, for giving me the opportunity to provide testimony today. And the views I'm about to present are my own and don't represent any of those institutions which you mentioned in your introduction. 
The annual report to Congress that uh, the Defense Department put out is a crucial tool for putting together information uh, and maintaining awareness about China's growing military capabilities. And in the question and answers, I'm happy to answer any questions about specific platforms and developments and what they mean for the United States' ability to operate militarily in East China Sea, South China Sea, and Taiwan. But today I want to talk about something I think that the United States government is less adept at doing, and that's assessing the implications of these military developments, what they bode for the future, and the best way for the United States to respond. Specifically, I want to talk about two issue areas, cooperation and then competition. The term cooperate and its various derivations are used three times more often than competition in the 2018 annual report. And I think this is indicative of an underlying logic of US military strategy and national security strategy, which highlights the importance of pursuing cooperation with China. And in my written testimony, I speak specifically about the military to military exchanges we have with the PRC. However, I think there's a number of misconceptions that uh, make it so the United States is failing to effectively leverage cooperation as a tool of our national strategy. And in my written testimony, I list five of these misconceptions, though given time, I'll highlight two of them here. The first is that there's a common belief that cooperation in some areas will lead to a reduction uh, in tensions and perhaps increased cooperation in other areas. Specifically, there's this underlying belief that if we cooperate with China on less contentious issues, for example, humanitarian aid and disaster relief, uh, perhaps uh, uh, global endemics, for example, that this will build goodwill and help us uh, move forward in other issue areas that have more tension, like South China Sea and East China Sea. Uh, this might be the case of the primary driver of the tension between the two countries with strategic mistrust, but unfortunately it's actually conflicting interests. And so this dynamic in which we're hoping to build cooperation by building goodwill does not work. So in the uh, written testimony, I recommend that we shouldn't think about cooperating militarily with China for the sake of generating this goodwill or momentum for cooperation in other areas. If we're hoping China is going to give us something in return for a concession we make, we need to make that explicit because those implicit issue linkages never really work with the PRC. There's another problematic assumption, which is that cooperation, the benefits of cooperation are gonna outweigh the costs. Now many people have probably talked about the costs of cooperation, but not enough people have questioned the actual benefits. I think there's a lack of consideration for what Chinese capabilities, tactics, and preferences might do in certain issue areas. Specifically, there are areas like counterterrorism, for example, in which I think the lack of Chinese capabilities, a weakening of those capabilities, could actually hurt US efforts if we invite Chinese cooperation. And so in the cases in which Chinese interests clash with those of the United States or that China lacks any relevant capabilities, I think it's fine for the United States to continue to encourage Chinese free riding in these areas. The other problematic assumptions I lay out in my written testimony have to do with the global nature of the threat. And the basic bottom line is I think the United States should be cooperating more with other militaries outside of the region uh, to help us uh, confront and provide a united front to China on the global stage, um, as well as enhance our contacts with China outside of the Indo-Pacific Command to other theater commands. The second area I wanna talk about is competition. And specifically, my main concern is that even though the annual report to Congress and in general, uh, we are recognizing that Chinese global influence is increasing, we fail to understand what this increase in influence means. We have a tendency to mirror image, which means we misinterpret Chinese behavior. And specifically, I wanna talk about something which I label entrepreneurial actions. In every case of a rising power over the course of history, the United States included, Great Britain before that, the Mongolian Empire, um, in every case, the rising power will try to accumulate power in a new way, in a different way, and tap um, new sources of power to uh, delay a reaction on the part of the great power. 
And they do this by creating uncertainty in two ways. The first is uh, the United States might not recognize what China is doing because it's new. And the second is the United States might think that the payoffs of that strategy are going to be low. I think the Belt and Road Initiative is a good example of this, and I list other examples in my written testimony. But when it was first announced, the bottom line of commentators was this was going to be a failed strategy because it wasn't economically viable. Also, even though now the United States is paying close attention to economic coercion, uh, this has been a part of Chinese strategy for over two decades. And it was mentioned for the first time in 2015. So the fact of the matter is that China is pursuing power in a new, different way. So even if BRI didn't turn out to have strong military dimensions, it doesn't mean it's not designed to limit US power. So I list a number of recommendations that I think could help us deal with this. The first is that we need a whole of government approach. We need a USAID report um, on foreign aid. We need a State Department report on Chinese diplomatic efforts in addition to the DOD annual report. Um, we need a new type of red teaming in which we not only look at things from China's perspective, but we also look at how they might be trying to create this uncertainty. We're too quick to assume the US way is the best way and that China will fall suit if it can, which makes us blind to new ways China is seeking the United States. And the last two recommendations, since I'm out of time, uh, the first is just that the United States needs to be entrepreneurial in its own right. We can't just do more of the same, doubling down on building capability with allies and partners. We need to think more about building our relationships with other countries in new ways. And lastly, I think we need a China czar of sorts. We need a point person on this great power competition to ensure the United States is taking appropriate matching actions. So the bottom line is we find ourselves in an, an unprecedented situation. China is rising, and it's, it's primarily accumulated and exercising political and economic power for now. And it's facing the United States, which is more constrained than any leading power before it. So what we need is new approaches, new institutions, and new processes to ensure that this rise doesn't come at the expense of the United States. And I welcome any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mastro. Uh, Mr. Denmark. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, other members of the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to express, again, my personal view uh, regarding China's remarkable military modernization and its implications for American interests. The People's Liberation Army, or PLA, today is large, increasingly modern, and sophisticated, and capable of operating far from China's mainland. While it still faces several significant challenges, the PLA today has the ability to challenge the U.S. military to defend its interests in East Asia, the Western Pacific, and beyond. I'll summarize my prepared testimony by making three main analytic points. First, China's military modernization supports Xi Jinping's broader objectives to achieve the so-called Chinese dream of national rejuvenation. This means ensuring that China is stable and prosperous at home, dominant in Asia, and influential around the world in a way that ensures that the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is able to pursue its interests and prerogatives without restriction. Since coming to power, Xi has overseen a significant transformation of the PLA in terms of composition, structure, and missions. Ultimately, these changes are intended to enhance the PLA's ability to conduct joint operations, improve its ability to fight short-duration, high-intensity regional conflicts at greater distances from the Chinese mainland in a diverse set of contingencies, and strengthen the Chinese Communist Party's political control over the military. My second point. China's military modernization program has significant implications for the United States, our allies, and our interests in the Indo-Pacific. China's rise is already changing the balance of power in the region and will have profound implications for the future of the liberal international order. For the United States, for our allies, for our partners, a more ch capable Chinese military should be a major issue of concern. The result of China's military modernization is a force 
that presents a layered set of capabilities spanning the air, maritime, space, electromagnetic, and information domains designed to conduct long-range attacks against adversary forces that might deploy or operate within the Western Pacific Ocean. China is also increasingly capable of projecting power further afield from China's mainland, enhancing Beijing's ability to assert its preferences, defend its interests, and potentially to coerce its adversaries at great distances. These developments raise the risk of US operations throughout the Indo-Pacific, and especially within what Chinese strategists refer to as the first and second island chains. In peacetime, these risks are, in my estimation, manageable. But in war, while personally, I believe that the US retains the ability to prevail against China in every conceivable contingency, such victories will likely come at an increasingly high cost. In my prepared testimony, I focus on Taiwan, the Korean Peninsula, and the East and South China Seas as examples of how China's military modernization already poses significant challenges for the United States, for our allies, and for our interests. Most distressingly, in each of these areas, Chinese assertiveness and its burgeoning military capabilities raise fundamental questions about critical aspects of traditional American foreign policy, such as freedom of navigation, and implicates explicit US commitments to its allies. A miscalculation by Beijing in either of these areas could rapidly escalate into a crisis and confrontation with the United States. My third point, the US has several options it could utilize to enhance its ability to address the security challenge posed by China. Sustained significant investments in relevant military capabilities will be essential for the United States to sustain its advantages and address emerging challenges vis-a-vis -vis China. This does not just apply to the US defense budget. Uh, the US competition with China encompasses all elements of, of national power, and all tools of competition will require resources. There are other areas where the US has the opportunity to significantly enhance its ability to compete militarily with China. Specifically, the US could develop policies and initiatives to enhance its posture in the region, while also developing initiatives designed to empower its regional allies and partners to do more to contribute to public goods and enhance their defense capabilities. Allies and partners have played an important role in American foreign policy and national security policy since before the founding of our nation, and we should continue to play to our strengths. Um, by implementing such a strategy, um, the United States has an opportunity to proactively address emerging regional challenges and sustain American power and leadership in the region. At the geopolitical level, this will mean sustaining the key attributes of the international order that has been supported by the United States since the end of the Second World War, which were described by uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger as, quote, an inexorably expanding cooperative order of states observing common rules and norms, embracing liberal economic systems, forswearing territorial conquest, respecting national sovereignty, and adopting participatory and democratic systems of government, end quote. As Secretary of Defense James Mattis said during his confirmation hearing, history is clear. Nations with strong allies thrive, and those without them wither. I entirely agree and strongly believe that a focused and engaged United States, along with empowered and capable allies and partners, are our best answer to the significant challenges posed by an increasingly capable Chinese military. I thank you very much. Look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Denmark, and we'll begin with, uh, with questions. I think uh, uh, starting where you end, Mr. Denmark, uh, talking about an engaged United States, uh, talking about empowered allies. Uh, the legislation that I mentioned in my opening statements that Senator Markey, Senator Kane, 
uh, and others in the committee are all a part of, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act aims at sort of building that long-term strategy into law where the, the Congress and the executive branch can speak with one voice. I think under the Obama administration, the Asia Pivot or Rebalance was a good idea in, in concept, but what more can we do to actually back that up uh, in law through policy? Uh, and funding and other opportunities to engage diplomatically, not just from a security standpoint. So the bill focuses on three pillars, uh, the Asia Pacific, excuse me, security, um, economy, uh, and you know, human rights rule of law. Uh, under the security provisions of the, of the bill, uh, authorizes the Asia Pacific Security Initiative, funds at uh, $1.5 billion over the next five years. Uh, from an economic standpoint, it, it has language dealing with uh, North Korea, Taiwan, uh, continuing our uh, commitment to the six assurances, uh, the uh, Taiwan Relations Act, and other language to help build up uh, counterterrorism capabilities, training efforts, maritime domain awareness, uh, issues in the South China Sea. Uh, from an economic perspective, highlights the importance of multilateral, bilateral trade engagement using USAID opportunities to develop uh, better trade capacity, uh, and of course, dealing with the uh, human rights issues, uh, whether that's uh, Uyghurs and the situation facing in China uh, or, or the challenges we face in Myanmar and Philippines. Uh, is, is an approach like that something that we ought to be uh, pursuing? How, what more can we be doing uh, within legislation like that to show uh, our commitment and meet on the bone, so to speak, to an Indo-Pacific uh, strategy? Dr. Master and then Dr. And Mr. Denmark. So I think that is a good start to what the United States could do, but it does fall somewhat in the category of what I would label doing just more of the same. Uh, specifically, we focus on our partners and allies, and that's important, but China, what China is doing is they're exploiting gaps in the order. So we talk about the US-led international order and whether China is challenging it or not. But in reality, there's many areas of the order that lack certainty, are ambiguous, don't have consensus. So I would label cybersecurity as one of these areas. And so what China does is it's trying to build consensus or work on the periphery of the order. So for example, when they did One Belt, One Road and they initially moved to the Central Asia, they weren't challenging the United States because the United States was not there. And so I would say that in addition to strengthening our relationship with traditional partners and allies, the United States needs to think more broadly about um, its relationships with countries around the globe. Also, in terms of the security initiative, um, I would recommend that we think more about demand, not supply, in kind of business terms. You often, at least in my experience, you think about what the United States has to offer in terms of security security assistance. And then we try to put together packages, whether it's you know visits, port visits, or um, a rotation of a squadron or what have you, instead of looking at what those countries actually demand. And so we should move away from this model of uh, increasing advertising and hoping that countries around the world will decide they want what we have to offer, and instead try to look at what they actually want and start supplying that. Mr. Jim Mark. I, I, I think Dr. Master has some very, very good points there. Um, if I could uh, build off of what she said, in my um, conversations that I've had over the past two years uh, in Asia, um, there's a broad sense uh, amongst both our allies, our partners, and uh, other countries um, that the United States is um, easily distracted and is not uh, devoting the kind of resources that would be required in order to effectively compete. Um, that while there's, in some areas, there's some countries want to see the United States being open about its competition with China, other countries find, it, find themselves uncomfortable with such an idea. So it's difficult to develop a strategy for an entire region uh, in which one size fits all. So I agree with Dr. Master that we need to be able to tailor our approach to various countries based on their interests, uh, based on their objectives. Um, but broadly speaking, there's a sense um, across the region that um, the United States is not as powerful 
as we once were, that China is more powerful, um, and that they need to have a good relationship with China. But I think what's interesting, that despite those uh, conceptions of um, relative American and Chinese power, universally, each country wants to engage the United States. They want us there. In terms of demand signal, the main demand signal I see, broadly speaking, from most of these countries in the Indo-Pacific, is they want the United States engaged. They want us to be doing more in the region. So while I um, welcome the idea of in additional resources being devoted to these things, not just on the defense side, but across, um, across all elements of national power, the way you described, um, I also do think that we need to be uh, careful in how we tailor these, these initiatives to make sure that um, they're, they're implemented in a way that's acceptable and sustainable for countries that have in, um, at times very different interests than the United States and, and at times have interests that are not necessarily compatible with one another. Um, so while I personally welcome more resources uh, for these issues, I often say that there's a difference between competing verbally or competing in a document and actually competing in terms of resources. I think this would help in that direction. Um, but at the same time, I completely agree with Dr. Mastro, the need to tailor those investments for really what's needed, both in terms of um, our adversaries, our potential adversaries, but also what our allies and our partners are looking for. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, recent survey conducted by the Chicago Council of Global Affairs said that China is a rising military power. 62% of all, all Americans believe that. But at the same time, only 39% see China's military power as a critical threat facing the United States of America. So could you each deal with that issue in terms of the public perception? Uh, and uh, I guess answer the question of whether or not China's growing military might is in fact a critical threat to U.S. interests. Uh, Mr. Denmark. Well, I, I do um, agree with um, the minority of Americans who see the, the China as being a critical threat in the military sense, but I'd say moreover the, the long term. Um, at, the, at the current time, I think China is a military challenge um, in ways that, as I t explained in my testimony, both to American security, American interests, and those of our allies. And I'd focus especially on the role, on the China's threat to our allies, Japan and the Philippines um, being most, uh, most immediate. Um, and I discussed this in my prepared testimony. I do think that the, the nuances of these, of these issues um, are generally lost on the American public about why China and Japan um, are, are having problems or why what China is doing in the South China Sea is a challenge. And it's difficult to explain to the American people why a few thousand acres in the South China Sea represents such an important and critical challenge. Um, so I, 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 while I believe that China is a critical threat, I also understand the phenomenon that the majority of the American people don't see it as critically as maybe those who focus on it do. Dr. Masto, so how do, you, how do we close that gap, if you agree with uh, Mr. Denmark's conclusion that it is a real threat? How, how, how would you recommend that the Congress or those that care about this issue ensure that there is a full understanding of what is happening? 
So I'm not an expert on American uh, domestic politics, uh, but I think the big point here is that what this poll represents is that China has done a very good job at what I've mentioned, which is creating a great deal of uncertainty about its intentions. They've so done a very good job doing what? So what they're doing is they, they diversified power and they did it in a sequential way such that anything that you point to, for example, a certain military threat, someone could equally point to how they're cooperating in the Gulf of Aden, for example. Or if you talk about them undermining the international order, someone could equally point to, well, they're actually a part of the WTO or they support the United Nations. So you're saying that results in the 39 percent uh, thinking that it's not that big, um, that, that only 39 percent believe that it's a big threat to us. Exactly. It creates a delay. Most of our threat perceptions come from identified military forces, and Chinese military modernization only began in a big way about 10 to 15 years ago, and the United States has been focused on other issues. And so because of this, I think that's why the American public is not focused on the potential for conflict with China. I would just like to conclude that by saying we are too focused, I think, on the possibility of war with China. If you look historically, the big question is not only whether or not the United States and China is going to fight a war, but 80 percent of rising powers overtake the great power. So I doubt that we would think it is a mark of successful U.S. policy if China even peacefully became the dominant global leader and we were second to them. Okay, so, well, we don't want to over-hype that threat, though, huh? That, oh, that we're the world power and they're the rising power and that they would overtake us, is that what you're saying? And well, so eight out of ten times that's what happens? Eight out of ten times, that's what happens peacefully. Okay, or so we don't want to overhype that, though, because we clearly have a far superior military right now. Mm -hmm. So what is your recommendation to us that we undertake as a strategy in order to make sure that we avoid that result? I think we need to switch from a deterrence by punishment to deterrence by denial strategy. And specifically- By deterrence by what? By denial strategy. So we have this understanding based on our decades of experience with our superior military forces, as you mentioned, sir, that uh, we could we could force China to give up in certain scenarios by inflicting a lot of costs on them. But my understanding of Xi Jinping and his military strategy is if they can succeed, they don't care what the costs would be. And so instead of trying to convey that it would be costly for them, for example, to invade Taiwan, we need to start building military forces and positioning them such that no matter what uh, level of resolve China has, they could not physically accomplish their goals. Okay, great. So do you agree with that um, conclusion? Um, Mr. Denmark, that Xi Jinping just doesn't care what the cost is. They're going to do whatever they want, and they can, and they're, and they can be completely indifferent to what the impact is upon the fiscal well-being of their country. I think that uh, Xi Jinping has demonstrated himself to be uh, willing to take risks, willing to accept turbulence in relations with the United States and with his neighbors, willing to assert Chinese interests. But at the same time, uh, Chinese leaders are also careful to avoid um, outright conflict and confrontation. Um, I do believe that China is sensitive to, remains sensitive to risk and to cost. Um, I also believe that um, the idea of uh, the, the two versions of deterrence that Dr. Mastro mentioned, deterrence by denial, deterrence uh, by punishment, are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, to get to the fundamental question, though, and I think one of the challenges that we have when talking about this, and uh, Senator, you, you, you mentioned, uh, you gave an example of this, is that when Americans, I think, who aren't specialists in this, they, when they think about what would be a threat to the United States, they think about a military that is roughly equivalent to the United States, a global military power capable of defeating a wide variety of, of forces uh, all around the world. 
And uh, the point that, that I make in my testimony that other China specialists have made in the past um, is that in order to cause significant problems for the United States, for our allies, for the broader liberal order, China does not need to equal the United States as a military power. Um, even as a, as a dominant regional power, uh, or even an equal regional power in the Indo-Pacific, they still have tremendous capabilities to cause challenges and to be potentially a threat to the United States and our allies. And that's the challenges that we face in describing the threat, that they don't need to be equal to the United States in order for it to be a significant challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, along the lines of cost, you know, in the past um, several years, we've seen uh, increased investment in, in new military equipment by China, increased arms, armaments, uh, aircraft carriers. We've seen the expansion of Chinese uh, military operations, uh, South China Sea expansion. We've also seen the base now in Djibouti. Uh, we've seen um, the, the efforts that China is aggressively undertaking as it relates to Taiwan. Uh, which is an ebb and flow, it seems like. But recently, though, we've seen their successful efforts in El Salvador and uh, Panama, uh, the DR, and others, uh, as they have led to sort of derecognition uh, of Taiwan at the behest of, of China. You look back to uh, efforts during the Cold War, uh, U.S.-Russia and the U.S. efforts to sort of follow this cost imposition model where we would invest in arms, we would invest in uh, ballistic missile defense systems and ideas, uh, military placements to impose costs on uh, the Soviet Union and how that led to the end of the Cold War because the, you know, in part couldn't sim simply couldn't keep up with the cost that they were being, uh, being placed uh, under. Do you see that same kind of threat, though, that China faces, that we face from China right now, where uh, you mentioned they don't have to spend equal to the United States? Um, do we face sort of a Cold War-like cost imposition challenge, where China forces us to spend money in investing arms basing that we simply can't keep up with? And what does that mean for, for U.S. long-term uh, competition with China? Dr. Mastro. Uh, I think that's a very important point. We can't outspend China. This type of competitive strategy is something that China has learned about, and they are dead set on not being tricked into spending more money on things that they think they don't need. Even if the United States has superior technology, which we absolutely do, I would put my bet on a U.S. pilot over a Chinese pilot any day. Given the fact that they're also developing technologies that aren't so sexy, that we don't hear about in these hearings, but are cheaper, and they can develop more of them, means that we're playing this numbers game that even if we sh shoot down, for example, you know, 10 aircraft for every one they shoot down of ours, they still win because they have so many of them. And so this is what goes to the point of having maybe a new approach, not thinking about what we did in the Cold War, but thinking if we can't outspend them, um, what would we possibly do in the Asia Pacific? And I know politically it's not very feasible, but I would encourage us, at least as an exercise, to think about if we were to engage in military operations in the Asia Pacific, where would we want forces in Asia? And I will tell you, we wouldn't want them in Japan and Korea. Um, those are not places from which we can operate effectively against a Chinese threat. Um, and so maybe it's time that in addition to strengthening our relationships with our partners and allies, we think about new ways to be doing military operations, new ways to position our forces in that region so that we actually are more effective at dealing with this China challenge that uh, Mr. Denmark laid out. Mr. Denmark, do we face a, a sort of cost imposition parallel? 
uh, with China? Um, I, I think there are some examples of particular cost challenges that we face um, within the, the military challenge. For example, um, a Chinese ballistic missile costs a lot less than a U.S. anti-missile anti -missile defense system, uh, for example. Um, but more broadly, um, I don't see that dynamic at play yet. Um, I think there, there are ch questions, though. There are challenges about how the United States prioritizes its spending. Um, the uh, Chinese spend, uh, the Department of Defense estimates that uh, China spent about um, $190 billion in 2017 on its uh, security, on uh, defense, um, which is less than a third of what the United States is spending on defense. Um, and I've not seen examples of China having a guns versus butter debate yet. Um, to me, the, the sustained increases in China's defense budget seem fairly sustainable. Um, but I guess I mean the, the, that they would force us to spend money. Right, it's the right. reverse of the Cold War. So the question to me, I think that within a, personally speaking, within a $700 billion defense budget, um, I believe that we would have the ability to um, outcompete with, with, with China, but it would require uh, for the United States to prioritize investments specifically tailored to the China challenge um, rather than um, funds going, going elsewhere. And that's a question for the executive branch, that's a question for the Congress about where our priorities lie. Um, I, there are multiple examples of where the United States in our documents, we say the Indo-Pacific is important, um, we say that we want to compete with China, yet in, in, a, in, in several um, measures of defense, uh, I'm sorry, several measures of budget expenditure, um, the, the, the numbers say, tell a different story. For example, uh, look at the numbers for security assistance, um, in which US security assistance towards East Asia is lower than, I think it's the lowest region that um, the United States spends than um, any other region in the world, including like Latin America. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, to me, it speaks to the, the old Washington axiom of uh, show me your budget and I'll show you your strategy. I think the, the language of competition, the um, strategy of competition is very important. I, as you said, Senator, the uh, Obama administration's um, rebalance I thought was a good start to those prospects, but I think we will need to continue to shift our budget allocations um, or to or begin spending more in order to main, in order to be able to effectively compete. Dr. Mastro. And if I can just add to that by saying, if the United States is successful in its spending and builds a military <coughs> that um, China cannot challenge, we still have to have a whole of government approach because what China is going to do is shift to different tools in its toolbox, like economic coercion, like political <coughs> persuasion. If China gives some uh, benefits to our allies and partners such that they kick out the United States military, it doesn't matter how advanced our systems are. So we also have to be very cognizant and look for those indicators as well. Thank you. In your testimony, you both talked about uh, increasing uh, engagement to China around the globe, their interests have increased, you know, the concern over sea uh, lane security, uh, anti-piracy efforts, investments in that uh, within their military, uh, their business uh, location around the globe, the Chinese business community, uh, now uh, global indeed. Uh, if you look at its actions in El Salvador, uh, you look at some of the agreements that it appeared that they may have made, or at least El Salvador was asking of Taiwan in order to uh, deny uh, China's request involving money, dollars, financing of uh, political parties, those kinds of things. And perhaps I'm going to turn it over to Senator Markey. Maybe we can get back to this because I'm out of time. But I want to get into a little bit about the threat perhaps that we face within this hemisphere 
uh, of uh, Chinese military operations basings in a place like El Salvador, if that's part of it. But uh, Senator Markey, we'll come back to that. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to get a frame for this. So let's just say, roughly, for the sake of the discussion that we're having, that the United States military budget is in the ballpark, 700 billion, and the Chinese military budget is in the ballpark, 180 to 200 billion dollars per year. Do you, do you agree with that? And that the bulk of their dedication of that 180 to 200 billion is in the Asia Pacific area, while ours is spread out, although they are beginning operations in other parts of the world, but still the large concentration is in that region. So talk about that in the context of President Trump's America First policy and our need for alliances to deal with the fact that while our budgets may look very different, in that region, the gap is not nearly as great, and why it would be important for us to keep our alliances uh, intact and, in fact, to enhance them. Uh, Mr. Denmark. So, thank you, Senator. I, I think that the fundamental assessment from my point of view is that U.S. alliances in Asia are fundamental to our, our power, our access, uh, and our interests in the, in the region. Um, not only do they host tens of thousands of U.S. service people, but they also act uh, alongside us. Uh, along, their security forces, their militaries, operate shoulder to shoulder with ours, um, providing public goods, um, maintaining stability, um, allowing for the, um, the peace and st the stability and prosperity that we've enjoyed in Asia for, for so long. Um, the challenge, of course, as Dr. Mastro has pointed out, is that for our allies and our partners, um, this is not just a, a military question. This is a whole-of-government question. Uh, and um, other aspects of American power, particularly trade and investment, has geopolitical effects. Um, and for we've entered a situation now for most countries in Asia, um, they see China as the main source of economic opportunity, and the United States is the main source of for security. Um, and the, the dilemma that these countries face is that they want to avoid being forced to choose. Um, they, there's not necessarily a lot of trust towards China, um, even as the dollars come in. Uh, in fact, um, my sense is that the more, the more renminbi that comes into a, con a country in, in terms of Chinese aid, the more worried they get about maintaining their own uh, independence, their own sovereignty. So can so, I just ask, in, in the context of that region, uh, when we're talking about the Quad, the, the uh, multilateral security arrangement, Japan, India, Australia, the United States in that region, uh, as APEC, how important is that? And what do we have to do to make sure that it does not deteriorate? So I would say the Quad is important in conception, but so far 
is very limited in terms of what it actually brings, primarily because the different countries have very different approaches to China and very different geopolitical orientations. So for example, India, they're worried about China. Um, they want to improve their relations with the United States, but at the same time, they have no interest in being seen as an ally. They have no interest in, of the United States. They have no interest in being seen as directly trying to confront the Chinese. Um, they want to have a more independent approach. And mm -hmm. because these countries have such different orientations, it complicates the effectiveness of these minilaterals. But I do think that the various um, institutions springing up in Asia, uh, be it ASEAN, the various trilaterals, the bilateral alliances um, involving the United States, the emerging relationships between various countries like India and Vietnam, for example, I think are all important as part of building a network of alliances and partnerships that help strengthen the international order, but also complicate uh, Chinese efforts to make, put themselves at the center of regional geopolitics. Okay, so should the United States abandon the um, rules-based international system? And uh, what would the concessions be that we would try to extract in order to take such a step? Uh, Dr. Uh, Mastro. So, sir, I don't think we should abandon it. Instead, what I'm arguing for is an expansion of that system. I think that actually the international, rules-based international order is very limited. If you look at the definition, the party to that order, the amount of countries that actually might be involved in certain treaties, it's not every country um, possible. For example, India has very different views on things like cybersecurity than the United States does. And so I think if we could manage to build consensus in these areas of uncertainty, we could actually shape China's choices. And and to that end, that gives uh, the United States a lot of political power. Because the bottom line is one of the main differences between today and maybe 10 years ago is for the United States, the security benefits that we give to our, our partners, allies in the region are no longer enough to outweigh the economic benefits that they get from interacting with China. And so we need, an e we need a security benefits plus type of strategy in which we think also about the economic benefits, which is, is difficult under the current administration given the trade policy, but also those political benefits by building new international institutions and building new norms and consensus around areas where that consensus has failed to date. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, going back to the question I was going to start to talk about, just the investments that China has made in South America, the investments China is making in, uh, in Central America. Uh, if you look at uh, investments in Panama, El Salvador, uh, and uh, at least apparently in El Salvador uh, as perhaps part of an agreement uh, as it relates to the decision El Salvador made on Taiwan, uh, Look at the sale of submarines to countries, uh, Thailand. Do we see do, do we see that as a continued opportunity for China's military expansion? Will we see a military basing affecting U.S. operations in Thailand? Will we see uh, perhaps opportunity for military entrance into uh, Central America, into South America, China basing even perhaps? Mr. Denmark. Well, I think there's a lot that remains to be seen. Um, I don't think there's a definitive yes or no uh, answer to that question, but I do expect that Djibouti being the first overseas base that China has established, I fully expect that that will not be the last. Um, where additional facilities may pop up um, remains to be seen. I personally would expect it um, more facilities to, to be established along the uh, the trade routes through from uh, 
from the Western Pacific through in, the Indian Ocean into the Middle, into the Middle East. Um, I, I would expect to see more there than uh, before I would see, before I would expect to see them in uh, Latin America, primarily because of China's economic interest. Um, but it remains to be seen. But I, I do think, and I, I address this in my, um, in my uh, prepared statement, that um, China's thinking about um, overseas basin, uh, and especially it's thinking about alliances and partnerships is very different from these, from how the United States thinks about it. That um, based on my conversations with uh, Chinese academics, um, I, my sense is that Chinese officials, uh, my ch that Chinese officials and Chinese academics see these relationships as fundamentally uh, transactional and fundamentally coercive to a degree. Um, and so I think that will ultimately limit the effectiveness um, and the breadth of these facilities um, in peacetime and especially during, during uh, pot potential conflict and crisis when these countries will suddenly be forced to make a choice uh, to allow Chinese military forces to operate from their country. Um, when there's a long-standing, deep, values-based alliance, that calculation for an ally is very different when the, when the arrangement is purely transactional. Dr. Master. I don't think China is going to pursue the same type of global military presence that the United States has. This goes to uh, one of the points in my written testimony about entrepreneurial actions. Um, China sees what the United States does globally as something that is ineffective, uh, being largely not only with the global military presence, but being very intimately involved in the politics of countries and then supporting different sides to ensure that you have someone in power that is supportive of your military operations or your general policies in that region. A lot of uh, Chinese strategists will write that this is what's costing the United States so much money and will ultimately lead to our demise. And so I think China is going to pursue a different way, not because they don't have the capabilities to emulate the United States, but because they think that is actually what's leading to the U.S. decline. What might that different thing look like? Um, I think, for example, China is much more likely to rely on local authorities to protect their interests abroad than the United States would feel comfortable with. We already know that they are indifferent to who is in power in whatever country. They're more than happy to change whatever deals they had with the previous administration or leader to a different one um, right after that. Also, I think it's telling that Mr. Denmark referred to facilities, not bases, um, because the fundamental structure of a lot of what China is doing is more right now logistics focused and they aren't pre-positioning offensive systems there. So I think that's important as well. Their main point is if they do move any sort of military operations beyond their immediate region, the purpose is going to be, you know, to not so much to impact US operations, but to facilitate their own. But the bottom line is when I saw the national security strategy, and uh, its promotion of this idea that we're in a great power competition with China, to me, that signals that what becomes important is no longer the US-China competition, but the United States relationship with the rest of the world. And it enhances the influence of countries like Djibouti um, in US strategy. And so more resources, military or otherwise, need to be focused on some of these um, smaller countries. Uh, Mr. Denmark, you talked a little bit about the security versus economic sort of relationship, that uh, they look at the United States as a security relationship, they may look at China as an economic relationship, but eventually that, that can't sustain itself, uh, because if there is no sort of economic interest, or can it sustain itself, I guess is the question, if there's no economic opportunity and if the benefit of the relationship is flowing one way and the expense of the relationship is flowing another way, can that continue and will nations, uh, you know, in, 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 
regional uh, in particular, uh, look at that and say there is a danger in not having any kind of a, uh, moving too far down the path of a security versus economic uh, relationship? Uh, yes, sir. I, I believe that countries are generally un uncomfortable with such a scenario, um, in, in part because um, they want to avoid being forced to make a choice, um, um, informed by their distrust of Chinese intentions, um, informed by longstanding relations that many of them have with the United States. Um, and to me, this points out to the need for the United States to enhance other aspects of its engagement. With, with these countries. Um, having worked in the Pentagon, um, I, I tried to enhance our security relationships with these countries as best I could, um, but the need to enhance other aspects of, of this engagement, is particularly on the trade and investment side, um, is geopolitically critical in my estimation to ensure that these countries aren't put in the difficult position of needing to choose between Washington and Beijing. Because for many of these countries, they may not like China, they may prefer to work with the United States, but the reality is that China is close, China is large, and the United States is far away. And so making sure that they have the ability to avoid that choice, I think is, is an important aspect for American strategy in the region. Thank you. I also, just to add to that, think it's important to communicate to our partners and allies that we won't negotiate their security with the People's Republic of China. For example, when President Trump announced that we would reduce military exercises in South Korea, this was music to China's ears. This was their key strategy to enhance the relationship with North Korea in order to use that to get the United States to reduce their military presence. And so if we want to maintain those strong security relationships, we have to demonstrate to our partners and allies that we are not going to sacrifice, for example, um, our security relationships for the sake of any economic benefits or cooperation in a different area with China. And that's an interesting point. I think uh, a question, Dr. Master, that I'd, I'd have to follow up with that is, if China sees an opening to reduce, and I think um, the testimony before us today talked about the interest uh, uh, in the Korean Peninsula, uh, China's interest in the Korean Peninsula. I think, Mr. Demarco, as your testimony, you talked about sort of the three varying interests uh, of, of, you know, U.S. involvement in the peninsula with the ultimate hope of getting the U.S. out of its uh, involvement in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, why do you think China hasn't uh, pushed further on North Korea to perhaps widen that uh, expectation of, that, that Mr. Trump said, uh, President Trump said that he would uh, pursue fewer exercises? He's talked perhaps... Uh, there's been discussions of whether or not troops would be removed from the peninsula. Why hasn't China pursued, pushed harder on North Korea to actually denuclearize in hopes that perhaps President Trump would further withdraw from the Korean Peninsula? I think China's assessment is that what North Korea is doing, making the promises to consider denuclearization was enough already to get the United States there. And so potentially by pushing it too much, you're really calling attention to the fact that I don't want to create this image of China as the puppet master, but that this is part of a bigger um, strategy for China to overall reduce U.S. military presence and operations in the region. If that's what the discussion is about on the Korean Peninsula more openly, I think the United States would smartly be more resistant to making those types of changes. So I think that's why China is kind of indirectly behind the scenes trying to pursue these types of strategies. Senator Markey. Great. Thank you. Um, let's go to North Korea and China. Uh, and the uh, promise that we would end those, curtail those uh, military operations. And, uh, you know, kind of reports that China 
would uh, like to increase uh, trade with North Korea just as a way of kind of maybe getting closer to them on the one hand, but also kind of undermining our objectives uh, with North Korea at the same time. Could you talk to about that issue and, uh, and what you think China's goals are uh, in North Korea at this time? I've written extensively on this issue, sir, and I think that um, China's goals are, are very similar to ours if we're looking just in the context of North Korea. Obviously, they would prefer a denuclearized Korean peninsula. The difference is that China sees the Korean issue in the context of its broader competition with the United States, and so that denuclearization no longer becomes the top priority. So initially, about a year ago, um, China was uh, actively preparing for military contingencies in which they were going to invade North Korea without a North Korean invitation. The relationship between China and North Korea was very bad at that time, and they felt like if there was some sort of contingency involved in the United States, they would have to get involved to protect their own interests. Once the diplomatic options became more viable and that President Trump agreed to talk to um, Kim and Kim agreed to talk to President Trump, China shifted its strategy to try to use diplomacy to get the United States to um, decrease its presence in the region. So in, in the end, China would be more than happy, one, for North Korea to denuclearize, but two, Xi Jinping himself has said that the ideal scenario in the future is a unified Korea under, under South Korea Korean control. Their views of North Korea have changed significantly. The issue is they don't want to pay costs to get rid of North Korea if that is to the benefit of the United States, if all that means is the increase of U.S. influence. And so I firmly believe that, and this I'm not advocating for this, but if the United States promised to leave the Korean Peninsula, if North Korea no longer existed, that China would push North Korea so much and, and be more than happy to risk its collapse. Your thoughts, uh, Mr. Denmark? I'm, I'm um, less confident in my reading of, of Chinese intentions. Um, I do um, broadly agree with Dr. Mastro um, about um, that China's approach to these has changed fairly radically. Um, but I do think there are some differences between how China approaches the North Korea issue and how the United States does. Um, first, I think fundamentally, China seeks to manage the nuclear issue, not to solve it. Um, and a piece of that is to uh, see, to prioritize stability over denuclearization. Um, and uh, within that, when the Chinese talk about stability on the Korean Peninsula, they, they, uh, traditionally they seek to avoid the collapse of the North Korean regime. Um, yet at the same time, they also have seen the United States as dangerous as well, the United States as a dr potential driver of instability. And so historically, when the United States has appeared to Beijing to be more um, unpredictable or more, more likely to begin a conflict, China tries to placate the United States and try to, try, tries to do things to um, reduce the potential that the United States would start a war. So I do think they have very different approach to this issue than the United States. But I think that right now the ultimate, um, the ultimate um, sense from, from Beijing right now is that they see the dynamics on the Korean Peninsula fundamentally through the lens of geopolitical competition with the United States. Thank you. Um, in September of 2013, China began a concerted effort to build artificial islands in the South China Sea. By crushing coral reefs into sand, it built land features where none previously existed. 
On top of that, China expanded small outposts into military bases capable of conducting operations. Admiral Philip Davidson, the commander of the United States Indo-Pacific Command, stated this year that China's militarization of the uh, Spratly Islands in the South China Sea means, quote, China is now capable of controlling the South China Sea in all scenarios short of a war with the United States. Ms. Mastro, what considerations or challenges do these bases pose for other claimants and the United States in peacetime, in the gray zone, or in conflict? In other words, what are the implications of China's military bases in the South China Sea? So militarily, sir, they expand the range of Chinese capabilities. And so I think I made the point previously that it's difficult for us to conceive of fighting a war with China using our bases in Korea and Japan. And that's primarily because of the range of uh, conventional precision guided munitions that China has that can reach those bases and render them inoperable. In the South China Sea, which is about the size of the United States, um, China's power projection capabilities historically have been quite limited. Um, and in the report, for example, uh, one thing that was highlighted was the H6K when it has LACMs. Now China can extend its range to 3,300 kilometers. But if you actually have bases there coupled with carriers, then China is able to sustain combat sorties, for example, for longer periods of time at, at farther ranges than it was before. And this is what allows it to be able to control, um, as the quote suggested, large areas of the South China Sea, the air, and the sea. I would just mention on the gray zone side um, that China can engage in gray zone activities only because the United States allows it to. There's nothing that, as far as I understand it, there's nothing that tells us that, for example, if China says, well, this is a Coast Guard, that we can't um, respond with the use of the U.S. Navy. We are too concerned about escalation, and China knows this. They don't believe in, in miscalculation and um, inadvertent escalation, and so they use this to their advantage. And we should start um, being very clear about what our red lines are and obviously being then able to follow through with that. Well, how, how, does, how does their presence there alter our military calculations uh, in that region? What, what is changing now, in your opinion, because of their enhanced presence out in the South China Sea? So there's a debate, sir, about, um, I think, how the United States will operate in that contingency. So certain bases or areas that used to be safe uh, would no longer be safe as Chinese uh, are able to operate farther and farther out. So something like, should the United States be d dispersing its forces more, or should we be spending more money on the defense of our bases once China is able to meet them? This is the type of the debate that then extends beyond Japan to areas farther and farther out. Okay, and, and Mr. Chairman, thank you. Um, Mr. Denmark, what do you make of China's apparent plans to use floating nuclear power plants uh, to provide power to these bases in the Spratlys? What, what's, what are the implications of floating nuclear power plants out in the ocean? I, I've, I've heard those reports too, Senator. I think it, it's concerning to me both the idea of adding nuclear materials into an already very complex situation um, that also involves tremendous um, environmental problems um, created by China. Um, I worry both about um, the sustainability of potentially introducing nuclear power into the South China Sea, um, primarily because of the very dangerous weather that happens in the, in the South China Sea. Personally, I wouldn't want to be stationed on any of these 
islands with a nuclear reactor floating a few hundred yards off of the, off of the coast. Um, and I think it would be irresponsible on the part of China to introduce um, nuclear materials, fissile materials, hazardous materials uh, into, um, into the South China Sea in an area that doesn't need them um, and is already very much environmentally damaged by their actions. Thank you, Senator Markey. Uh, the South China Sea, obviously, um, in, in the conversations we've had today, we've talked about positioning of uh, U.S. troops or forces, uh, making different strategic decisions on where we place our investments uh, from a defense perspective and an alliance or ally perspective. What are we left with in the South China Sea? I mean, they've militarized the islands. They've built the islands. What are we left with? Are we... Uh, relegated simply to a freedom of navigation operation? Is there more that we should be doing? Should we talk with other, other, uh, we should talk with other nations about other opportunities, but what are those other opportunities? Dr. Mastro. Uh, so first I will say that this militarization of the South China Sea is not over. In my discussions with Chinese government officials, what I've been told is the movement of uh, weapon systems to those islands has barely begun. And what they're going to do is maybe wait for freedom of navigation operation or some excuse so that they can say that they're responding to U.S. action in order to help them move more of their forces there. So what we're going to see is, not, is a hardening and also the movement of more weapon systems to these islands over the next few years. That being said, what can we do about it? This goes back to my previous point about sort of deterrence by denial versus deterrence by punishment. There's no amount of freedom of navigation operations which will stop China from militarizing these islands. Either we decide we're going to physically stop the supply or or we, we don't have those other options. So what I would recommend is actually we promote something like a coalition that we had in the Gulf of Aden. I mean, we could even invite China to be a part of it for you know, legitimacy reasons, but the idea would be that we have multinational patrolling of the South China Sea waters to ensure freedom of navigation. Because right now, no one doubts that the United States has freedom of navigation. So our ability to conduct these operations, they don't really actually reassure anyone. Is the United States prepared to protect vessels that fly a Vietnamese flag, that fly a Malaysian flag? My understanding is we're not there yet, and as long as we're not there, then we're not actually gonna be able to deter Chinese actions. Mr. Denmark? So I agree that conducting freedom of navigation operations um, doesn't send a very robust reassurance signal, but I would say that to, to not conduct the operations would send a terrible- I agree. Um, lack of reassurance, um, deassurance maybe, if that's yeah. the word. Um, so I do think it's important for the United States to continue freedom of navigation operations, uh, and beyond that, to just operate, to fly sail and operate wherever international law allows. I think the, the key message to send is that China may be doing these things in uh, ways that are incompatible with international law, but it does not change the United States' behavior or uh, does not uh, intimidate us that we're going to continue to do what we do. But I do think there are things that we could do in response to, what, uh, to China's actions in terms of enhancing the ability of our allies and partners to defend their, ally, to defend their islands. Um, um, to, uh, there's also, I think, there's a legal options to use the arbitration tribunal ruling on the South China Sea um, as a diplomatic tool um, against the Chinese. And, uh, and another piece of this um, is that the U.S. has been very ambiguous in its take on which country rightfully owns which islands. Um, and I think one of the challenges that we've had in the South China Sea is that we've called on the Chinese to comply with international law, to restrain themselves, uh, but we never have a, 
uh, we, we have not had a statement of what happens if they fail? What happens if they continue to ignore our requests and the requests of, of the entire international community? And to my mind, one of the things, one of the things that could come after that of Chinese failure to comply with international laws and norms is to clarify where the United States has been, has been ambiguous in the past um, and to use those sorts of diplomatic capabilities in order to um, show that for China that their behavior has consequences. And now, are you suggesting that we actually then would decide, uh, that we would side with a claimant? Is that what you're saying? What I would do is to look at what the arbitration tribunal ruling says um, in terms of China's rightful claims and the rightful claims of other countries and the rights of other countries, and to use that as the basis for American policy going forward and to use it as, and to actively um, demonstrate U.S. commitment to, to that ruling. Um, in terms of whether one country should control that island or not, I, I'm not there yet, um, but I do think we need to be able to show the Chinese that their actions have consequences. And by enhancing the ability of our partners uh, to defend themselves, by maintaining a robust presence and expanding that presence, and by using international law uh, as a tool of diplomacy, I think we can show that their actions do have consequences. Where, you know, as we pay attention, as we, our attention is drawn to the Korean Peninsula, as our attention is drawn in the South China Sea, where else is China actively pursuing a, uh, either on land or by sea, South China Sea, another one, the South China Sea's 2.0, so to speak? Is there another area that we are not paying attention to right now sufficiently with either a strategy or uh, concern that they're, encroaching, building, developing the same manner or a similar manner? Um, I would point to, that there's a, the, the, to me, the area that's most like the South China Sea would be in the East China Sea. And there's some important differences. China is not conducting island building. Um, they're not putting, doing military construction there. But there is um, a very um, heated dispute between China and Japan. Um, over, the, over those islands in the East China Sea, China has been doing more to uh, elevate their presence in No, we have given a security guarantee uh, to the East China Sea. We have not to Correct. the Philippines. Uh, should we be expending ex on, on Scarborough? Uh, should we be exceeding, uh, I guess, putting the same kind of uh, security guarantees in place? Well, it's a, it's a bit different because the, the, the language of the treaties are different. The, the treaty with Japan specifically refers to territory that is administered by Japan, um, in which case that um, the Japanese islands clearly fall within that. The treaty with the Philippines is, is, not, is, is worded differently, so I think the way we talk about uh, uh, territory controlled by the, the Philippines would necessarily be different, but I do think that the Obama administration decision to clarify U.S. position at, a, at the top level on Japan in the East China Sea definitely sent a strong signal to the Chinese uh, and for, at least for a time, uh, my belief has decreased uh, the amount of pressure that China was putting on the East China Sea. But I also think that's an area um, that we need to keep an eye on in terms of Chinese efforts to uh, put pressure on our allies and to expand uh, their claims into, uh, into other people's territorial areas. Thank you. Now I'd like to turn to uh, nuclear weapons uh, in uh, uh, China. The Defense Department reports that China is now uh, in the process of completing their nuclear triad and is updating all legs of that nuclear force. The People's Liberation Army Rocket Force is enhancing its intercontinental ballistic missiles 
of which it has between 75 and 100 to make them more survivable, more mobile. Uh, among other updates, China is building a new stealth bomber and the People's Liberation Army Air Force is upgrading its aircraft with two new air launch ballistic missiles, one of which may include a nuclear payload. And at the same time, the PLA Navy is improving its submarine launch ballistic missiles. Our China's nuclear force developments destabilizing, do you see any indications that the Chinese Communist Party intends to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in its national security policy? Or is it on an upward trajectory uh, that would perhaps suggest to us that we should engage in nuclear arms control talks with the Chinese uh, as we have traditionally with the Soviet Union and Russia. Uh, Ms. Mastro. Thank you, Senator, for that question. It gives me the opportunity to say some things uh, for which I'm optimistic about the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, China's modernization of their military, of their nuclear forces, both quantitative and qualitative, is actually a stabilizing force in the U.S.-China relationship. For many decades, China has been uncertain about its second strike capabilities, specifically whether or not if the United States launched a first strike, they would have the capabilities to retaliate. And this has led to um, a number of uh, rethinkings about Chinese nuclear strategy, which is traditionally been a no first use strategy and a launch on attack versus launch on warning in terms of their exercises. And so from the United States perspective, there's always been this gray area that um, there's been a concern that if China, if the United States attacks even conventional Chinese capabilities, this might be misconstrued as a first strike causing China to launch other nuclear weapons because they don't have that second strike. So the development of the triad uh, at sea and in air hopefully will make the Chinese more optimistic about the survivability of their nuclear forces and can actually lead to stabilization uh, in a crisis. You're saying that it reduces the hair trigger relationship between the United States and China with regard to its nuclear arsenal, that because they're deploying in a triad, because they're enhancing their capacity to withstand a first strike, that they're less likely uh, to just push the button in a use it or lose it situation uh, that may be ambiguous, that may uh, ultimately trigger an accidental nuclear uh, conflict between the United States and China? Yes, sir. If it does change their perception of, the of their ability to conduct a second strike, yes, it uh -huh. would be stabilizing. Um, so from your perspective, should we be, and I'd love to get your comment as well, uh, Mr. Uh, Demai, uh, Dr. Mastro, do you believe that we should begin to have arms control negotiations with the Chinese? Uh, Sir, if we could, that would be a good idea, but there's no way the Chinese would be willing to talk to us about arms control over nuclear weapons because their position is when the United States reduces its arsenal to reach the level that China currently has, then they can begin that, those types of negotiations. Okay. But so, and do you agree with that, uh, Mr. Denmark? I, I do. Um, both, I, I would, the only other reason I would add for Chinese reluctance, both because they see a wide disparity in nuclear capabilities and the size of our nuclear programs, but also they tend to see um, arms control negotiations as we had with the Soviet Union as evidence of, of, cold, of a Cold War relationship. So if we were to begin to engage with them in some dialogue about nuclear weapons, whatever it may be, um, it would have to be couched in a way that's clearly different than how we uh, handled these issues with the Soviet Union. Uh, that's interesting. And uh, of their military budget, 
do you know what percentage they're now putting into their nuclear triad? I don't have specific numbers for that, but I would say that it has been a lower priority um, of their military modernization. They've allowed it to go um, this long without having a secure second strike, and I think it's only because they don't have to make those trade-offs between uh, butter and, and guns at this point that they're starting to modernize their nuclear force. Uh, Mr. Denmark, do you have any idea? I, I have nothing else to add on that. Okay, great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, final question for me. We talked a little bit about Taiwan earlier. Um, the, Chinese intention, China's intention as it relates to uh, Taiwan. Um, today, Senator Markey and I, Senator Rubio, Senator Menendez, introduced a bill called the Taipei Act, which would create a U.S. strategy uh, to uh, work with countries that have relationships with Taiwan, what we can do to encourage those relationships to continue to counter uh, Chinese uh, efforts to, um, as it pursues its policy toward Taiwan. What is the ultimate goal of China as it relates? Is this an actual invasion force we're going to see? Is this continued economic uh, rattling of the sword that we'll see to further pull Taiwan back into uh, its policies, in line with its policies? What, what do you believe the ultimate goal is as it relates to uh, Taiwan? Uh, Dr. Mastro. The ultimate goal is reunification, ideally by peaceful means. Um, however, Xi Jinping made a number of statements in which he promised to the Chinese people that that reunification was gonna happen. I think he said by 2035. I was less concerned originally about those statements. I thought they were just you know, something rhetorical that a leader says uh, originally because I thought Xi Jinping was gonna be stepping down in a couple years and no one could hold him accountable to those statements. But now that he's extended his tenure indefinitely, it does change the picture for when he made those statements about Taiwan, whether or not he thinks he's gonna be held accountable to actually live up to them. I think the bottom line is that China is prepared and is going to be willing to use force if they have to for that reunification, but they want to do it peacefully in the meantime. Um, in terms of what the United States can do, I just want to highlight a basic point, which is provocation is not necessarily a bad thing. We're always worried about you know, some action that's going to provoke China. Provocation can lead to escalation or tension, but it can also lead to the opposite, depending on what China learns from U.S. actions. So the legislation that we introduced would also uh, allow the administration to downgrade diplomatic relationships with the country that were to uh, you know, follow China as it relates to Taiwan. Is something like that an uh, approach that you would agree with? I think that if the bottom line is we want to signal that we're willing to stand uh, by Taiwan and that we don't want China to successfully engage in coercion vis-a-vis -vis other countries, and the United States has to be willing to either impose costs on those countries, as you suggested, or provide certain benefits or positive inducements to get them not. You mentioned provocation. Uh, give me an example. Yes. So um, something like that, if you wanted to, uh, for example, uh, improve your relationship with Taiwan. I've heard maybe you know putting uh, you know military members in uniform that are stationed out in Taiwan um, or have higher level uh, leaders of the United States right. visit. You know that's really going to upset Beijing, but that's not necessarily going to be a bad thing in the end. What is it might mean that they understand that now is not the time to push the United States on Taiwan policy. Mr. Denmark. So I agree with um, the the ultimate goal is unification with Taiwan. Um, preferably by peaceful means, although China has never renounced the use of force. Um, have the odds increased that they would use force um, under I, Xi Jinping? I think that the potential for China to use force is dependent on several different factors. Um, um, and they've, they've talked about it publicly, what those factors may be. I don't know, they're not terribly, they're fairly vague. Um, but I think broadly speaking, so long as 
uh, China's leaders believe that there continues to be progress made towards unification, that time is on their side, um, so long as they believe that um, it's possible that any military intervention would fail. Um, I, I think those are some of the, some of the issues that they, that they look at. But um, I do think it's important that when the United States thinks about its relationship with Taiwan, that, it, that the primary question is focused on what helps our relationship, what helps Taiwan. Um, and questions of how China may react should be at most secondary if considered at all. Um, the, but uh, the corollary to that to me is that to recognize that China will react. And so I tend to um, look for policies related to Taiwan that substantively and substantially help Taiwan that are not symbolic, that are not symbolic alone. Because what often happens, and what I, tr what I would hope to avoid, is symbolic gestures uh, um, that feel good for a bit to help Taiwan, but ultimately uh, drive a Chinese response that doesn't hurt the United States substantially, but hurts Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So um, I tend to favor policies that are much more that are substantive uh, and less symbolic. Um, in terms of options on how to maintain um, uh, Taiwan's international space. I do think that we're talking to a lot of these countries to maintain the relationship is important to convey that maintaining that relationship with Taiwan is in the US interest. There is a bit of an awkward piece of it for the, our diplomats to handle is that we don't have an official relationship with Taiwan. Um, but I think that's, that's manageable. Um, the, the key though to me um, for all of this is to think fundamentally how does this help Taiwan um, how does this maintain Taiwan's international space? Um, how do we, and how do we convey to Beijing that maintaining a, a robust, if unofficial, relationship Taiwan, uh, with Taiwan is in the interest of the United States? Thanks, Mr. Mark. Senator Markey. Yes, and I just have one final uh, area of um, questioning, if I may, and that just goes back to the Belt and Road Initiative, which has resulted in a very generous policy by China of loaning money to countries, which they then can't pay back, which then results in China being able to extract huge long-term concessions from those countries. Sri Lanka, just a perfect example where they've now had to give up a 99-year uh, uh, lease to uh, <clears throat> to uh, the Chinese company, which is partially owned by the Chinese uh, government, 15,000 acres of land. Uh, and, uh, and now it appears there are more countries that are deciding to reconsider how far in debt they want their countries or companies uh, to uh, be to a Chinese entity. But at the same time, President Xi just in the last few days has announced a new $60 billion program of grants, of loans uh, around the world on top of the $60 billion program that uh, they've had in the past that now has these consequences. So what are the implications for the United States for global security of, uh, uh, of these Chinese uh, strategies in country after country to gain access to uh, our control over um, ports in, in countries. Uh, and what would you recommend to the United States that we do uh, to try to make sure that we minimize 
the ability of this Belt and Road program uh, to build uh, economic and security relationships with com companies in a way almost you know, giving them offers they can't refuse so that they become deeper indebted and more entangled into Chinese foreign policy objectives. Yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Mastro. I think just um, like we mentioned that the Chinese military doesn't have to be as strong as the U.S. military to be competitive. Uh, the United States doesn't have to offer as much money as China does to be competitive in the economic sphere. We really just have to show up. And this is because um, the one you already mentioned that there is an increasing backlash against what China is doing, but also locally, um, Chinese business practices lead to a reduced quality of a lot of these things. So I was in Djibouti last year in Ethiopia, um, and this made me actually very optimistic about the United States' ability to compete when it comes to aid. Because while the United States was, uh, for example, our base in Djibouti hires over 100 Djiboutians, and we uh, insert hundreds of millions of dollars into the economy, the, the Chinese base hires zero Djiboutians, it does not contribute to the economy. And they've built a railroad that doesn't even extend to the port, and the only reason they got that contract was, you know, through bribery. And so I think what we're seeing now is that countries are learning. These economic policies on the part of China are relatively new, and that if they had the opportunity, they would rather have a road built by, at least what I heard in Ethiopia, like Japan, that actually will last them longer versus a road built by China, which they know they're going to have to rebuild in five years. And so at least in this area, I think it would actually be very easy for the United States to be competitive if we were contributing time, resources, and effort to being competitive in the economic sphere. You're saying made in Japan, made in uh, China may not be exactly what people are looking for in these countries after they've experienced uh, some of the early examples of what it then means for their country. Yes, sir. In a lot of cases, like in the Japan example I gave, I think, with Ethiopia, is our allies and partners have a lot stronger presence or relationships with countries than we do. And so it might be the case that instead of the United States trying to give aid or, or investing in these infrastructure projects, we would be working with our allies and partners to do the similar type of thing. Okay, so uh, Mr. Denmark, uh, Dr. Mastro says, we've got to show up. We've got to have something that we're presenting here that demonstrates the United States' interest in these countries. So what do you recommend? Every year, uh, thank you, Senator, every year um, several senior Chinese officials will go to China with CEOs in tow, um, have a high-level meeting with dozens of presidents, announce all these big deals, announce infrastructure projects, and it's a consistent high-level engagement. Um, I completely agree with Dr. Mastro that we got to show up. Um, but um, I would add that we need to show up with, um, with something in hand, um, that good intentions are not going to be sufficient in, in Africa. Um, I think the Chinese miscalculate or overestimate the geopolitical effects of their, of their um, economic moves. I think it's one of the problems, I think, of being a Marxist is that you tend to overestimate these, the political effects of, of economic ties. Um, a lot of countries that become, as, country, as I said, my sense is that as countries become more and more economically tied to China, the more they're worried about maintaining their own independence. So I do think they're looking for the United States. I do think they'd rather work with the Americans or the Japanese or the Europeans or whomever, but we do need to show up. Um, the initiative announced several weeks ago by Secretary of State Pompeo 
uh, in this vein to enhance um, U.S. engagement, economic engagement in these, in these areas, I thought was a good indication of seeing the problem and trying to address it, not trying to copy the Chinese system, but playing to American strengths of the free market uh, and American corporations. Um, they, uh, Secretary Pompeo received some criticism for the number he announced of $113 million. Um, I think that's sort of an unfair comparison to what the Chinese announce, especially in, a, in an off-budgetary cycle announcement. But I do hope that as this initiative becomes more funded, we're able to put more resources behind, because I do think it's the beginning of a very important um, geopolitical response uh, to a lot of these challenges. Thank you, Senator Markey. Uh, thanks to Senators Rich and Kane for participating in the hearing today. And I think uh, Mr. Denmark, uh, Dr. Mastro, that's the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act that I talked about at the very beginning uh, of the hearing is something that will allow the U.S. to show up with the policies and resources in hand uh, to develop greater economic ties, greater security alliances, uh, and uh, help on human rights and uh, democracy throughout the region. And so with the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, with the BUILD Act, uh, I think that's a great step toward the U.S. leadership and presence in Asia, providing opportunities for strategic balance and uh, continued economic uh, growth through the region. So thanks to both of you for your time and testimony today. Uh, your homework assignment, the record will remain open for members to submit questions uh, through Friday. Uh, until the close of business on Friday, I would ask that you return your answers to those questions as soon as possible. And uh, with the thanks to the committee, uh, the hearing is now adjourned.